Okay, today I'm in Ascot with professional tipster, punter and entrepreneur, Simon Holden. Thanks very much for uh, agreeing to talk to us, Simon, in your, in your betting lair, I assume this is. Um, now, I, as I've often mentioned in these interviews, I do my... I do my um, research. Now, you gave me a number of one of your friends. Mistakenly. I should put that in inverted commas, uh, yeah, yeah. Nigel Seeley. He was very glowing about you, but he did say he's definitely a Branson. Well, yeah. Firstly, thanks for coming. Uh, yeah, he did. And of course, we're all talking about the, the fantastic Patrick Veach interview that you did. Um, I've got a, a slightly off-the-wall theory here. Of course, the Branson factor is that, that somebody who appears to be nice and wonderful actually will be the one with the old blade between the... Uh, and they do say, don't you, you have to be 100% behind someone before you can stab them in the back. But uh, I just wonder if, if Veach was playing a bit of a double bluff there, whether the great man himself has got the Branson factor. But uh, no, I, I try and be nice to people. Um Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, but you know, I, I've probably made two-thirds friends and one-third people who don't like me. So I'm probably, if Branson's Premier League, I'm probably mid-range championship on the Branson factor. You have to put Sealy in the not-to-be-trusted Branson. Uh, well, relegation at so, least. So you describe yourself as a professional tipster, punter and entrepreneur. So which predominantly is it? I'd say now, uh, I would say tipster. I think we was talking earlier. I said if you, if, you, if you call yourself a professional punter, I think really that's all you, you should do. Um, now, so I've got YouTube, I've got various other tipping avenues and broadcasting avenues and obviously the racing syndicate. So I think kind of uh, tipster first, but um, I'm certainly looking to, to punt seriously four or five days a week. It used to be seven, so I've, I've cut down rather than stopped. Well, in recent years, you've been a semi-professional, at least very successful punter. So how long did it take you to actually crack it? Um, over 20 years. And I would say to anyone, you know, it's that the longest journey starts with a small step. And the journey from being a, a an appalling gambler in the sense that uh, I always think gambling's a very... It's not a grey area, it's very black and white. You look at the end of the month, you've either made money or you've lost money. Now, the people who've lost money, like I did in the old days, they can live in this in this never-never land of the fact that they're incredible gamblers. They've just had a little bit of bad luck that month, that the racing is fixed, the usual things, rather than the difficult look in the mirror session where you realise you, you're going wrong. Predominantly, that's having to too many bets and I used to bet in every race every day which is just punting suicide so 20 years of 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 learning the game and then some really the best thing I ever did say was to stop for three or four months and not out of any uh, addictive need to stop but just to stop and actually learn the craft and if you're betting every race every day if you're constantly punting then you, I think you're too much in the fray to to take a, a step back and look Obviously, check your results, look at things you're good at, work on the things you're bad. So probably my mid-30s was when I started to win seriously, which is, is quite a, an apprenticeship. Yeah, so would it be right in saying that you're predominantly a goat punter these days? No, um, probably 70% horse racing, 30% golf. I, I, I started betting on golf very, very early, started designing my own ratings, was a huge Keith Elliott disciple. 
uh, still am, think he's one of the, the great minds we've ever had on, on psychology of punting. So I started to look at his his work and do some like individual player ratings, develop them. And I've had golf punting services for the last 15 years. Um, predominantly now I favour the PGA Tour, I think. But uh, but racing's the day, golf's the sort of cherry on the cake, racing's the, the day-to-day uh, bread and butter. Okay, now you're obviously quite comfortable in front of the camera because you're doing it nearly every day with Holden's Horses. You mentioned a YouTube channel. So what's yeah. the idea behind that? Well, I got asked to do it and it was just before lockdown and agreed was really excited about doing it. And then, of course, the law of sod racing came to a, a stop. So I thought, well, let's carry on doing it. Uh, There's still places in the world that were, were racing. So we became like an American racing service, did some French racing, did some racing in Hong Kong. Got built up what I would describe as a cult audience during that period, which others have described as an incredibly small audience. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it, it kind of got me started. Now, any, any you'll know yourself that the more you do these things, the more you slowly evolve, um, the less mistakes, the less you got. Um, although I've just done that about four times. So it, it was a real education when, of course, our racing came back behind closed doors, was kind of ready. And I broadcast every every day. My time at Betfan, we, we did uh, Betfan TV, which I hosted every week, which was, again, uh, the people that watched it liked it, um, you know, both of them. But they were, we, we, we used to do it from a flat and then we did some Facebook Live. So in the early kind of days of all this, before YouTube evolved, I've always been sort of out there. And so I've got thousands of hours in the uh, in the tank already so yeah I, re- I really do enjoy that intimacy I mean, with people that was you know building anything up from scratch which i assume you did that's a yeah. big big task so you done you know regardless of how big it was to get any audience from scratch is a is a is an achievement isn't it yeah it is and you i think with anything if you put content out uh, there are obviously professional ways of getting more eyes on it and and working with the algorithms and as you build up but I'm a great believer if you put content out, it will find its audience. You'll find the people that like you and you like them. And I've kind of found that now. Uh, I've been doing this a long time and I've found the people that like my kind of catchphrase, heavy based approach and, and reoccurring um, themes and, and certain bets and big prices. And I give every bet a name. Uh, was a huge fan of Mark Stanley, the couch still am. Was lucky enough to work with him a bit at Tip TV. And I used to love his approach. Uh, Derek McGovern was another hero of mine. And they would always tag a, a, a gag on with the bets and stuff like that. And I, I love that. I try and make it entertaining. A, so people will keep watching. And B, so it'll build that that niche up. So, yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love YouTube. Now, you, you've been quite honest with, with me telling me stuff before. Now, it's safe to say that the Lord Oakwell... Uh, tipping service didn't initially go well when you your first foray into it well i think you've been very unfair there so for saying initially it never went fucking well at all but uh <laughs> yeah it was my i'm a great believer if you want to do something the first thing you've got to do is actually start because there's so many people who like look over the like the hedge in life and say look at somebody else i'd love to do that or, or another thing where they say i could do that and i think you should just give it a go because if you do it and it doesn't work do something else so I always wanted to do a, a, a tipping service, but I was kind of, I didn't work in the industry. I'm not from a, a racing background at all. And I um, I just didn't know how to go about it. So I had some like business cards and I called it Oakwell Racing. Of course, my my uh, Twitter tag now is at Lord Oakwell, where that comes from. Um, 
And so I kept that, but it was an unmitigated disaster. So nobody joined for, I think one bloke joined by accident. He probably like rang me up for the cricket scores or something. I managed to like get him to stay. And then I got one customer and I gave five bets in a week. Four won, I think the last one fell. And he rang me back and said, it's not for me. So, so I thought, oh, yeah, well, yeah. So, but what it did was it, it gave me a start. And then when I, when I went to go for the job at Priceform, I was able to say, tick the box, have you worked in the industry with one hand over the, <laughs> the fingers crossed, one hand over the mouth. I was able to tick the box, yes. So with, with anything, you know, it's a start, a disastrous start, but a start nonetheless. Now, you mentioned, um, you mentioned Bet TV, uh, Tip TV and Bet Fans. So can you tell us a little bit more about those? Yeah, I, I worked for, for Priceform as, as racing and golf correspondent, which was a very, very early online magazine. Um, and I was writing lots of content. I was doing every golf tournament. I was doing like the, the big uh, racing festivals. So again, it was a real education in, in discipline and content writing. I was still working at the time in the real world. And um, Priceform sadly folded. And I was told by a friend of mine, Paul Graham, that there was a new company called Betfan. And at the time, I, I thought, oh, I'll just punt, go back to my old life. You know, I was a bit fed up really with the the thing folding, but I rang Betfan and and started with uh, a golf service, then a racing service. And at the time I was working with my, my, my mentor, I've mentioned you before, Chris Anzani, who was the morning mole in the in the Resident Football Outlook before Steve Mellish. I was working with Chris. Uh, he came to Betfan originally, but he more than anybody was able, like I said, was able to get rid of all the like bad side of my like punting and tipping and leave me with what was left so I, I really what, was, what was that then what was the bad um uh, anger emotion paranoia everything was fixed um it's not my fault go kind of thing I'll tell you a funny story about Chris he went away for a few days and left me in charge and said whatever you do boy like don't have too many bets well the first one I tipped one I thought I quite fancy a few more it so I put about five or six out over the three days well, anyway, they, they, they were all like nowhere or whatever. And I thought, oh, Christ, he's going to come back. He's going to go berserk, which he did. Uh, and my missus at the time, I said to her, if this Welsh bloke rings, tell him I'm not in. Um, and she almost did the classic when he rang. Uh, he says he's not in when I'm siding upstairs. So eventually, when it, about the third time I came down, I was like, oh, Chris, I was just about to ring you, mate. He's like, yeah, of course you weren't. He sort of said, you know, don't you ever do this again, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so I learned about the danger of being cocky and, and over-tipping. So I, from that day, I've never tipped like a, a punter. I may have had bad spells, but I've never tipped on emotion. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about your book in the next part because you, you go into this sort of emotional, the part of, um, of betting there. I mean, um, you, at, at those places, you worked with, is it um, Mike Catamo, Nigel Seeley, people at that, at that yeah, time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I worked with the cat very briefly. It was a chance to get your own back on Sealy. Yeah, yeah. I work, well, well, I worked with, 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 with Mike Catamol briefly, stayed like friend with him, uh, uh, top, absolute top bloke. One of those people that when you meet him, you, you're hoping he's as nice as you think he might be. And, and he is one of those few people. And as we know, Cy, there are some people in this business who you have the opposite feeling when you meet, but uh, the cat's a different class. Um, yeah, we... Tip TV was fantastic for me because it was, I'd worked with Betfan for about four or five years there and um, 
was was really like supported to, to kind of develop things as I, as I as I wanted to most of the time, and then to go down to London and film in a proper TV studio with like Nigel Seeley, Couch, Jamie Banks, who's gone on to work for PDC, who's like a brilliant, brilliant young broadcaster, not so young anymore, um, was like was great, and we had some really good times. Seeley is is without doubt one of the great football uh, judges. Fashion, perhaps, is a, is still an issue for him. But <laughs> it, it, it was great, and and um, I felt then that before that I'd been not pigeonholed, but I'd been in sort of the internet, uh, and I th I think it's happening less. But I thought at the time that the broadcast media and the uh, the media in general looked down on in, the people in the internet. I think that's that's less, but I'm talking like seven, eight, nine years ago. But that. Yeah, that was fantastic. Great, great times down at Tip TV. And as I've said before, the only thing it lacked to be a, a brilliant like TV station was was viewers. If we'd only have had viewers, we would have been great. Okay, Simon. Right. So you set the scene. You set the scene in part one. You've done a fair bit, but um, more recently you've written a book, the Blet the betting blueprint. That's easy for you to say, Si. <laughs> <laughs> Stop it. So why why did you decide to write it and share your knowledge? I, I I've always wanted to write a book. Um, I felt it was kind of the right time because I'd, I'd left Betfan after ten years uh, and I was kind of freelancing, doing different things, and I had a block of time, which is a real polite, nice way for me of saying nobody was in, nobody was offering me any work at the time. So I, I kind of tried to break it down and what what the aim of the book and I sometimes think I didn't get this across well enough is that the book is about people who are struggling at gambling now it's a hot topic at the moment it's not about problem gamblers it's not about gambling addicts. it's about people who are not very good at betting on horses predominantly and it's about slowing down the bad habits correcting the mindset and then giving like strict strategies that are not world leading but they are ones that if you follow them you will not lose anymore um, and you'll, you know, I talk about it's the, you go to the platform, Mark Profit, uh, instead of going down the, the, the dark alley of, of, of punting badly. So, so it's about people who want to learn the basics of, of how to turn around a losing betting career. And, and you know, there's different, there's different, uh, I never know if we get a fixed thing on this because there are people who say 99% of punters lose. I don't believe that for a second. I think it's probably between 80 and 90, which is still a huge amount uh, of people who, who need to like that, that mirror, that check, that stop, and then that reintroduction to, uh, to changing like habits. Because there are ways of beating the book. Um, it's to cut out the amount of shorties you bet. It's not rocket science, it's to look for like value. I do think that value is below seven to two, Sometimes you have to question it, and then above nine to one, maybe value dissipates as well. So it's about looking at profitable zones. So yeah, it's it's sold well, and Amazon bestseller. So uh, I'm working on the follow-up as we speak. Okay, we'll talk about that later as well. But I'm interested that you come from a non-racing background. Yeah, well, I was born in Scarborough, uh, not from a racing background at all. Um, so fairly near Malton, but not that that in sort of impinged on my life in any way. I just play football all the time. And it was while I was at sixth form that I got invited by another guy who I knew who was the sixth form bookie, a guy called Andy Taylor. 
And at the time, I don't think he can be prosecuted retrospectively 36 years later. So we'll say he was a six one bookie. At the time, tax was 9% on bets. So he would like offer odds on, in fact, I still earn three quid because I bet Joe Bugner to beat Bruno, but I'm, I'm, I'm sure he's written it off. Um, he would say, right, it's Tottenham v Liverpool, the big game. The what, because ITV, the big match was one, one match. It's very much pre-Sky days. So he would offer odds on, on that weekend's game. And we would say like, oh, it's a little bit prohibitive, Andy, but he would say, um, we'll go to the bookies then and pay your tax. So that was his catchphrase. But he invited me down one day to, to, to bet a horse called Miss Camellia that uh, his dad was a, a syndicate member in. And so I went down with him and, and bet that and the horse won. And I had that feeling of, I give you five pounds, you give me 20, which was the most, it was almost like a nuclear uh, shock to me. So I think I say in the book that I think I've spent the last 36, 37 years trying to recreate that feeling. And I wonder if that's what we all do when we punt. Uh, we're trying to recreate that first incredible buzz of, a, of this amazing life behind the betting shop door. So I was pretty hooked from there, but it was to prove far more complex than my dad says my horse will, will win. But Andy's gone on to uh, run Andy Taylor Bloodstock and be a hugely successful bookmaker as well. So it's, it's funny how one, one chance meeting can take you both down that particular path in life. So yeah, since then... It was very much frowned upon by my family, um, who understandably think gambling is not the way they wanted me to progress. But I think once you're in this game, it's very difficult to get out of it. It's like the mafia, nobody ever leaves. Well, something else you say in the book as well is that the gambling world will chew you up and spit you out. So you're yeah. not really selling it to people that might No, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Copies are still available, by the well, way, after saying that. Yeah, yeah, there it is, there it is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know it's there. It is Amazon and all bad booksellers are still uh, selling it. Yeah, they, um, yeah, it is. It, it's I don't I, the idea of writing the book and my my whole like shtick in general is that that there's no point selling people a fairy tale. This is a rough, tough business. If you want to bet seriously, you've got to you've got to be ready for those weeks, months, dare I say, even years when you're you're chasing on the inside. Uh, and you're having to learn new things. And, and the, the horrible frustration, which anybody who does it genuinely seriously will tell you, when the things that worked two, three years ago no longer work and don't produce a profit and you've got to put them in the bin and chase what's the next angle. So it's not easy, but it is possible. It is possible to beat the book. And there are plenty of people doing it and there are plenty of people with the letter that says your account's closed that prove it. So, you know, but you've got to think smart. Okay, they're talking about thinking smart. I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book. I've Thank got to you. Say. Um, Checks and, in the post. And <laughs> but you've got some ideas in there that are going to get people talking, and, yeah. and some people screaming, "What a load of nonsense!" Because yes. I, I don't mean yeah, that in yeah. a bad way. Yeah. But if you ask any mathematician, yeah. the odds of after nine consecutive come on reds, hit me yeah, nine hit consecutive me. reds on roulette. <laughs> They say it's going to be the same odds of the next one. The next one being red. You say start piling into black. Yes, I think not, I think, not exactly yeah, quoted yes, you, but yes, that's I, the. I, I think you're referring to perhaps the most contentious thing of a already highly contentious career, where I developed a theory about probability. Well, it was with a friend of mine. I told you before, he's a forensic scientist. Um, 
people who don't like the theory probably won't want them. Uh, Is that him. the prof? No, the prof. No, 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 and he, he isn't allowed to solve any more murders, but the, if he ever has solved any. But yeah, we came up with this idea about probability. Uh, and the, the, the actual wider thing is called the fundamentally interconnectedness of all things, whereby nothing is in a bubble. Now, of course, mathematicians will tell you that everything is separate, that the spin of a coin is 50-50 and can never be anything other than 50-50. But I put it to you, Si, and these people like Neil Channing, who mock this theory, and, and many, many other people in racing. But uh, I have garnered some support, but it's one of those where nobody wants to say publicly they agree with me. Um, I put it to you that if a coin has spun 14 times and it's still come out heads every time, that you are now beyond the realms of what should happen in the wider light universe. And therefore, you should start thinking seriously about betting on tails. No gerrymandering, the coin is, is the, the roulette reel, wheel is fair. So the guy walks into the casino, he sees people playing, he thinks, what's all the commotion about? And this incredible run of reds has occurred. Now, the reason I said it in a casino, because it's like perfect chance, but the, what, what I wanted to get a debate about was, was, was how in sports betting, how in golf, where if you have like, say, I tip 12 losers in a row in playoffs, incredible like freak of whatever. Now, obviously people who are in that service were thinking, well, he's got to win a playoff eventually. And when it got to the 13th, obviously it did. Now, I make another example of Man City having 18 wins in a row and then I started to bet against them. Now, they'd had some wins that were, were quite lucky. They'd had some, you know, where it was a late penalty or whatever. And life just eventually will go against you. And we, we as punters, I think, need to think like that, uh, whether we're on a losing run or whatever. So I, I do think, though, each race is an independent event, each golf tournament, each spin of a coin, we're all connected to a wider point. So if somebody does bet on nine reds, I'm in the other camp. So, you know, I... I'm just going to say what I think people will be thinking when they watch this. I can understand that about roulette to a certain extent. Yeah. But with the way you were talking about Man City, so when Frankel was running, something's eventually going to beat Frankel? Yeah, or yeah. if you do have to accept sometimes that some things are better than others. <laughs> but how many Frankels have there been? Yeah, I know what you mean. There are, there are, there are, there are horses who you can go skint trying to be clever to get beat. And for years, I was always in the camp of, oh, I'll get that one beat, you watch, I'll get this. And then eventually you're better off rowing in. I appreciate that. But I do think, um, I'll give you an example, if you want a racing example, runs and runs of favourites. There was a meeting at Thirsk years ago where favourites won two-day meeting, both events. I'm sure some bookies are still in therapy for it, 25 years on. And that couldn't continue. Even though each race was independent, I would argue you, you wouldn't go back the third day. It, it would get, they were already in record territory. My point is, if you're already in record territory in things that have never happened before, I'd start thinking it's likely that that'll stop. So, yeah, I'm not saying any casino wheels or, or any coins, but I'm just talking in general probability, runs do end. And if it's 50-50, and, and that 50-50 has been nine one way, my own view, and a very few other people's view, is that you should start to think of the alternative. 
Well, there's actually, I did an interview with a guy from Race Stats app. Now, he, his program, everybody says it can't work, but it predicts when it's time for a certain horse. Anyway, that's by the by. But if anybody's interested in Simon's theory, that is backed up by winning system race stats up. There you go. I've always out. admired him. I've never yeah. heard of him. <laughs> so Sod's Law. There's room for Sod's Law. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's yeah, a yeah, thing, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So we've, then we've talked... Take that. As, a, as opposed to um, cold, hard maths. So talking about maths, uh, tell us about your secret weapon, the prof. Yeah, well, the prof, yeah. Um, he has been my kind of full-time assistant since we were 18, 19... I can't reveal his name for a variety of reasons, but he's, what I can tell you is he works in education as the head of a maths department. And basically, his job is to kind of realise my my theories to see if they can become um, something that we can we can tip and, uh, and punt. So I'll give you an example. When, when lockdown started, I thought, right, we've all got a block of time here now it's very easy to just let another day go by. So what we're going to do is going to try and do some new systems. Now, I've only really got into systematic betting probably in the last four or five years. It's never an area I've looked at. And so what we've done is we've come up with a series of systems for... We've pretty much got every course covered now with a particular system for that course, looking at past results. Uh, we've factored in lots of things like course and distance winners, uh, and various other like factors to give everything a score. So what I do know now is that people may have better systems, but we've got a unique product that we can work with. So I kind of have the ideas, and then he, he goes away and does a lot of the work. God bless him. Okay, now we're talking about um, we're talking about golf earlier. Now this is the final part, the second part. So if you've got the time, we'll have to zip it into the next part. But where does the value line not lie in golf betting? I say it's time and time again, Si, if you want to win seriously at golf, you have to concentrate, in my view, on the outright market. The bookmakers and people will try and get you betting on three balls, two balls, individual matchups that are 10 to 11 the pair. If you get stuck into that 10 to 11 the pair match bets, you're going to have to be getting eight out of 10 right to make that worth your time and effort. Now, I put it to you that it's hugely unlikely that you can seriously cop those figures. If you are, I would love you to speak to me on WhatsApp because I'm in. Whereas the outright market, you've got four days. I'll give you an example. You fancy a golfer on, uh, to play well at Sawgrass. He can have a bad first round still win the tournament. If you bet him to win the first round, he has a bad first round, you're probably going to lose. So he's going to lose a three ball, but he could still win the whole tournament. So your, your class will show for the four rounds. So concentrate. If you, if you want to do fun bets, I've always thought there's nothing fun about losing money, but make sure they're a very, very small amount of your overall golf betting bank and you concentrate on the outright tournament market because that is where the bookies are vulnerable. Okay, Simon. Now, we've, we talked about the book and then I'm going to go back to it because you made a very simple-sounding statement in it. You made the decision to stop losing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds easy. Yeah. Well, that was when I took a break um, for the first time since I was 16. And it's only then if you make a decision to do something and then write. I'm a great believer in writing things down. I think we spoke earlier off about, we often talk about losing runs uh, and record keeping. We don't talk enough about handling winning runs and previews and writing down what it is you actually want. And I'd say that to anybody. If you want to be a leisure punter, if you want to be a serious punter, if you even want to go professional, harder as it is to do that now, 
then you need to write down almost like a business plan or a project plan about what it is you want to achieve. Uh, and I sort of really got betting back to basics and found out that I had too many bets. I bet too many short price horses. I was constantly trying to get information out of people in Moulton, most of which didn't then come to fruition. So I started to learn seriously about form reading in a, in a professional way and, and limit myself to say 15 bets a week. And that meant I missed a lot of winners, but I cut out a hell of a lot of losers. And I can honestly say that if 90% if of punters cut their betting down by 75%, they'll see a huge upturn in profit. And also if you only have 10, 15 bets a week, it's still over two a day. And think of the amount of time you can spend on those races. If you're having 12, 14 bets a day, that's a hell of a lot of, of, of money you've got to rush through. Uh, so yeah, a painful process. And also I took that time to work on like myself, uh, work on, on how I uh, treated other people, how I treated betting and, and, and tell myself some like hard truths. So yeah, I don't think you can ever, de I think I'm certainly somebody and I think a lot of gamblers and a lot of people in this industry are people with authority issues, people with a lot of uh, rebellious streaks and I'll show you and everything. And that can be a good thing, but it can be a bad thing as well in, in punting. So if you've got a rebellious streak and you've got, if you've got authority issues, you're less likely to have that look in the mirror conversation because you spend your life blaming everybody else. So that was a real big, big change around. And then I came back into the game sort of tentatively. Uh, and then since then, it's not a fairy tale. I've had like bad spells and losing runs like everybody, but I'm content that I know what I'm doing is the right methods. And that'll mean losing runs, but it'll also mean in the end that, you know, I know I'm going to come out on top. So there's no point ever betting in anger. And, and that's what I suppose leads on to say that the idea of the 2.5% stake. The reason I used that was because it was a very defensive approach for somebody who was a losing gambler to try and slow down. Now, I know a lot of people say it's not aggressive enough, and that's fine. If you're somebody who can handle a bet four, five, even 6% of your bank in each bet, that's great. But what 2.5% will do is it'll carry you through losing runs and it will keep you from, from betting in anger and emotion. And if you... Betting anger and emotion, I think it's very, very unlikely you're ever going to win long term. Okay, so when I was interested in this, uh, the, you mentioned the 2.5% staking plan, which is 2.5% of whatever tank it is you've got. Yeah. And it's always 2.5% of whatever yeah. tank you've got. So if you've had a losing run, your 2.5% stake will go down with, the, with yeah. the size of the tank. Now, why do you go, you said it's defensive, but why yeah. would you not think a suitably sized bank and go 2.5% of that would be a better option. I think your mind view of it updates with every with every risk. So this is this is a, a pain in your house compared to betting a section of the bank. So you've got to have your your, your thing in front of you, your kind of retina. But for me, your, your whole betting process should be like an ongoing thing. So if you're having two to three bets a day, which would be a lot now for me, uh, then it's fairly easy to update. If you were having like 10, 15 and you were trading regularly, then you probably work, would work from a fixed bank. But I like to know exactly why. And it changes minimally. So like I was saying, if you have 75 quid on a horse and it loses, within a, a standard bank like that, 
your, your bet drops to £73.50. What you can't do if you stick to this, you can't crash and burn by, by charging. And you also can't chicken out by thinking I'm on a rotten run, I'm going to drop to a fiver. Because if you do that, of course, we know the game, you hit your 50 to 1 winner. So for me, this works. And I say in the book, if it works for you and you see gradual, gradual improvement, um, your bets are always going up when you're succeeding. So it seems like it's a ultra defensive mode. But my argument back to that would be, if you have an incredible year, that 2.5% is, is much bigger than it was the previous year. So you see, you're always protected from losing runs if you're on the right track with your betting, if you're looking for big price horses that are bigger than they should be, if you're not backing odds on shots, if you stay away from yards out of form, all those like golden rules like stuff, then you, you will be all right, you'll prosper. And again, it's what you want out of your betting career. If you want at the end of a year to say, I've made a couple of grand, this is what I'm going to do with it, then this will just keep you steady away. If you want to bet professionally, then you might have to tweak all sorts of things in your life, and maybe staking will be one of them. Okay, so but is it, I mean, you're a professional tipster predominantly now, so is it also peace of mind for you if you advise your punters to use this plan that they're never actually going to be out of the game, which is another thing that you, 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 you can't be out of the game? No, you can't be out of the game. If, you can't, if I want you to be a customer, it's, it's bad for me and you if you're out of the game. And... I'll give you an example, festival betting side. This is where I, I do a lot of festival specials and I implore people, and I know people don't listen. And it's from my own example, the last thing you want with a Cheltenham when you're taking the week off work is to be out of the game on Wednesday morning. So in the old days, the best bit of advice when I started going to Cheltenham was the old three drawer approach in the hotel. If you were taking 500 quid, split it into three envelope, was three day festival then, showing my age, and place the amount the same in each drawer in the hotel. Then you knew you could only take one on each day. Now the world's moved on, but there are ways of, of you know offering different banks for different days. So if we think of festivals as sort of a microcosm, if you think of your wider betting in the same way, you know, you could have 365 hotel room draws, but what you could do is just, just think that if you can't be out of the game, you, you, you can survive any losing run if you've got a defensive enough staking plan. And, you know, there's a losing run with everyone's name on it out there. And if you, you know, statistically, if you bet even money shots, you'll have two losing runs of 10 each year. So don't think you're protected if you're playing the shorties because there's one out there with your name on it. Yeah, of course, it. then you have three times as much on the 11th. Exactly. <laughs> right, so we've talked So we've talked about your book. You've got another book coming out. I have, yeah. I'm working on a book now about the history of tipping, tipsters, the future, the good bits, the bad bits, going back to Chief Monolulu shouting, I've got a horse, I've got a horse on an orange box outside Sandown. So is this is a, a entertainment as opposed to being... Yeah, a... this is not a guide. Uh, and I'm going to interview certain tipsters in there, ones that I've followed, ones that I've admired, some American guys as well. So I'm, I have set myself a target to finish that by, he said, the Ebor week. So I'm hoping that'll be out in September this year. Okay, so what? Or September some one year. I mean, I mean, why, why did you decide to do that, and how many sort of tipsters have you? Um, I re do you know from, from first getting involved in betting, and and this is really important that I fell in love with betting. The love of racing followed on from that, but I've always been uh, obsessed by tipsters, and I'm looking that I I do what I've always wanted to do, and 
It's a very small amount of the population that get up and they're doing the job that they always wanted to do. Um, so I wanted to sort of profile the ones I like, the good things about the industry, mention the things that are not so good. And, and tippings change from letters to phone lines to now doing the, the kind of direct involvement on YouTube or people through other social media sites. So, so it's changed. And I want to look at where it might be in five, ten years' time. I have a bleak view of racing, I'm afraid. I hope I'm wrong. Uh, and I have a fairly downbeat view of tipping. So I think their two, their two futures are obviously aligned. But uh, I think there is a future for both. It's interesting because I was involved with tipping when I, you see all the adverts in the sport and life and you're yeah, a kid yeah. and you think they, they're golden gooses there. Yeah, yeah. But since doing these interviews, I've met people obviously were actually genuine, very successful tipsters. Yeah. So they do, they are out there, you know, present company, of course, you know, they are out there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the other thing you've got going on is uh, you're actually getting involved with owning horses. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, I've got a friend in Scarborough, a 40-year friendship. We talked about doing something. I've always wanted to get involved in syndication. I thought, what better way to ruin a 40-year friendship than us starting a racing business? So that's what we've done. Um, I want the idea of, and I'm not sure there are some fantastic syndicates out there, and I'm friends with quite a few people who run them, but I wanted to get like the real fun back into racing. So it's called Going Racing, Making Friends, Having Fun. That's the, the tagline of the company, SH Syndicates. Com. We've got one horse in training now with Gay Killaway called No More. I'm looking to have ones in Lambourne, Moulton, and, and, and get back to that idea of a real day out, which racing for all its millions and millions of problems is still the best sport in the world. And it's the best day out, the best day. And it's the only day out where you have the slight possibility, slight possibility of coming on with more money than you arrive with. There's no other day out can offer that. So I really want that. And I also want people, like I said in the in blurb, who could look at an owner's and trainer's bar with bad intentions. So we want that people who, if if you sit at home and you don't want to go racing, this is not the syndicate thing for you. So we want to be out there. And is, is this something that you hope will be like a, a, a new, ongoing, growing thing? Or do you want to keep it nice and small? And No, we, 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 we want to like make it as big as we can, yeah. And, and that's what I want to do really now. I've found my sort of niche as i say i've got the people on youtube that like me and i like them if it's not for people then that's fine i want to do uh, another obviously got this book in the pipeline do another couple after that and really push this syndicate like business and and, and get out there yeah so uh, onwards and upwards okay so finally one bit of one bit of advice that punters should take from this interview with you what would it what would it be see the bigger picture Take the emotion out of your bets. Shout them home. Shout them home. You've got to shout them home. Best bit of advice was, was Eddie the Shoe Fremantle where he said, if you shout a horse home that you've backed, you get rid of like loads of emotion. So that's what I do. You kind of like shout and scream. The neighbours love me. And, and then it's gone. Whereas if you're a brooder and you sit and look at the wall and you've had a bad day, I think that's where it can get issues. So yeah, shout them home, win or lose. And remember that the point of it if you're in it to win money, is to then do something with it. So buy a TV, name it after the horse that won. So if you've got the uh, 
you've got the Frankel TV, so I've got someone that won at Catterick Computer. But then you, you know, you hook it. And of course, like my old mate Adelphus used to say, if you have a big win, turn it into collateral, buy a car or a house, and then you can't give it back. Brilliant. And on that note, Simon Hogan, thank you very much. Thank you, Si. New betting people interviews are published every week at Star Sports. Exclusive interviews with the key people from the world of sports betting. Check out our full library of interviews at starsportsbet.co.uk. Begambleaware.org. Over 18 only.